This morning's scripture is from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will again, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the word works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Thank you very much. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, church. Yes, I will get there. I'm making sure my microphone is off, on because Maria was kind enough to tell me it was on earlier during a conversation. So now we will release the alphas to go to their class. You can follow Miss Kristen. For those of you who have been here on a Wednesday night, you know where the Alpha's room is, but parents, it is the far right room, the one behind that wall. So, all right, so when our family moved to Vermont, a friend of mine, uh, a couple years ago, he said, okay, after you've been here for a year, you need to watch the movie Funny Farm. It's a comedy, Chevy Chase is in it, for those of you who have seen it, of a couple moving from the big city of New York 
to Vermont. One of my favorite scenes is the movie is when their moving truck arrives and they're gonna deliver all of their stuff. They come and they're trying to find their small farmhouse in the small town of Redbud. In the moving truck, it pulls up to this gentleman. He's sitting on a porch. I think he's shucking corn or sorting apples or something like that. And they say, and he, they roll down the window of this moving truck and they says, hey, we're looking for Dog Creek Road. And the guy says, well, if I was looking for Dog Creek Road, I would not start here. The guy rolls his eyes, of course, who's driving the truck. And he says, well, he goes off and then he, he returns and he says, okay, gentlemen, the other guy in the truck, he asks the question. He says, we're looking for Dog Creek Road. Would you be able to help us? And he says, well, I would swing around. I would go back where you came. I'd turn right where the old barn used to be and about five miles before the road dead ends, I'd veer to the left and I'd follow the railroad tracks into another town. Sounds like a lot of the directions that we give around here. Or you could take that bridge at the fork of the road and save a heap of time. And so these guys, they jet off towards the bridge. But before they were to listen to what the gentleman was going to say afterwards, he says, but I wouldn't go that way. And so just to say, they end up in a heap of trouble. They go across a covered bridge and their truck is too high and they hit the bridge and everything falls into the river. It's what every dad right hates to do, to stop to ask for directions. Which way do we go? And to know where we're going in John, it's helpful to consider where we've been and also where we are going since July was so long ago when we finished John 13. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can chuckle and laugh about the intricacies of where we live and even a movie that is about that. And God, we thank you that you give us direction, that your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God, we ask that you would do that this morning in our hearts, that we would honor and glorify you in all that we are and all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little recap of where we've been. So as you may recall, in John chapter 13, we have moved into Jesus's personal, intimate teaching time with his disciples. His public ministry has now moved private where he takes the next three or four chapters to spend some time to instruct his disciples, his public ministry of signs and healings and teachings and confrontation with the disciples and the crowds and the religious leaders has now gone indoors. And as chapter 13 closed, Judas has now left the room. Jesus had prophesied about Peter's betrayal. And then he reiterates to them that he will lay down his life for them, not vice versa. Before we jumped into Jonah a month ago, the disciples, they were scared. The world of the disciples, it's shattering before them. They are bewildered and they are confused. They have anxiety about what the days ahead may have for them. They're anticipating destruction and the persecution that they've seen Jesus endure for so long now in his ministry will get worse. And they know that this is coming. They need directions. They don't know the way on their own. If they do move out on their own, they will end up in a heap of trouble. 
And so in John 14, Jesus will bring comfort and belief through his sovereignty, through his testimony, and through his power in us. Those are our three sub-points this morning, and each of them has two points underneath them. It was very nicely organized this week for me. So let's look again at John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Let your not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so Jesus, he will bring his people comfort in belief through his sovereignty, which includes heaven and his exclusive claims to get there. That's our first big section this morning. So verse 1, it sets the tone for our entire passage this morning. In the midst of this disconcerted situation, Jesus provides for them spiritual as well as emotional support. Jesus doesn't want them to be overcome in their toil. He doesn't want them to be intimidated by their situation. The heart of is the seat of one's emotions and will. And Jesus wants them to trust him in their heart. He wants them to trust God. He wants the disciples, as you see, to trust him as well. You believed in God. He says, believe also in me. And the sense of, or the tense of this word, believe, is that of a, a continued, ongoing action. Where you believed, keep on believing. Keep on doing this and keep believing in me as well. In your terrasso, that word trouble, which we get the English word terror. In your terror, believe in Jesus and keep on believing. He begins with the command, believe. You believe, so keep on believing. Don't stop. The world around you is showing lots of turmoil. The heart of the disciples is showing lots of turmoil and stress. And in the world we live in today, right? It doesn't take you long to realize there's lots of stressors. There's lots of turmoil going around. Maybe you would even call it terror. Maybe the government situation gives you anxiety and anger. Maybe your financial situation gives you fear that you won't be able to pay your bills. Maybe your health situation gives you trouble. Or maybe I wish that I wasn't so sick. Or this loved one that I have. Or this friend that I have wasn't dealing with these health issues. Maybe your spiritual situation causes you to doubt. Do I really believe these things in the scripture? Maybe Jonah gave you anxiety as we spent a month in there. As Aaron is calling us to go believe in your bulletin. There's a forward festival. We're going to engage with the community around us. Maybe that gives you trouble and anxiety. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. If you remember anything from this sermon this morning, believe in God. Let's pray and let's go home. Shortest sermon in the history of Cornerstone Church. Well, John wrote this gospel so that we might believe. 
since it's been a while since I read it, John 20, verse 30 and 31. This is the theme, this is the purpose of this entire book of John. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. You see a lot of these themes that are resurfacing in our text this morning. And this belief is a personal and relational trust. Another word for this term is faith. Jesus will bring comfort in belief. First, it's through his sovereignty. His sovereignty is shown first in his preparation of heaven for us. Jesus says there are rooms, many rooms prepared for us. Old translations of this, if you're familiar with them, say mansions. But I think that word is out of place, and there's a reason why it's not in our ESV in our text this morning. This same word is actually used by Jesus later in verse 23, if you want to scroll down in your Bibles. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and take, make our home, not a mansion, with him. It's talking about the spirit dwelling inside of the believer. More on that next week. But here, heaven is a place where for us to dwell as believer. He will also be with us when we are there. And the space Jesus prepares for us is a space uniquely designated for those who believe. There are many rooms. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand in the sea or the stars in the sky. Or as John will later record in Revelation chapter 7, a great multitude would be in heaven. For all those believers, there is a need to be many specific places for those specific believers to be. You see how personal this is for us, even in the text. And when Jesus says he will leave, he will prepare a place for us. Jesus leaving earth is of great advantage to us because it means that his hour has come, as we've seen over and over in the Gospel of John, when he dies and rises and subsequently ascends into heaven. That place is there for prepared for us. If he doesn't rise and die first, if he doesn't die and rise and then ascend, what Jesus means to say is that there is no place for us. And this is a comfort. And in verse 3, we get the first description of the rapture in the New Testament. You might be really excited to get into some eschatology here. We only touch on it a little bit. He will go and he will return to take us to himself. What the most important piece in there is the comforting deliverance that we get either when we die or Jesus takes us to be with him in heaven, removed from this troubling earth in which we live and dwell. This world around us, friends, is only temporary. Either we die and are with Christ, or he'll return, and he will take us up to be with him, to be with Christ. And so Jesus will bring comfort and belief through his sovereignty. This hope of heaven is the first sub-point. And in verse 4, Jesus reminds them, guys, you know the way. But in verse 5, Doubting Thomas doesn't quite know what is going on. He says, what's the way, Jesus? What are the directions? Where, how, how do we get to this place that you are preparing for us? And Jesus gives us one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. 
Jesus will bring comfort and belief through his sovereignty in heaven, but also in his exclusive claims to get there. John 14, 6, I'll read it again. It says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way refers to an action of traveling on a journey uh, or a posture of life, a way of life in English. The early church was actually called followers of the way in the book of Acts, seeing this theme and this action continue to put into real life for them. And Jesus is not just a good posture towards the way of living. He is not just a truth. He is not just a way to eternal life. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. The word the in the text is actually there in the Greek when it's not absolutely required to be there. And it's there on purpose that he wants to make clear that he is the only way by which we are saved. Jesus is giving, is giving us the exclusive claim to salvation is through him. Friends, there is no other way. And even in the first century of an age of religious pluralism, Jesus is the only means by which someone is saved. We can be considered inappropriately narrow in our world or even intolerant with that belief. But pluralism, the idea that many ways or all ways lead to heaven and to God, has become the predominant force in our world. And that is, as Jesus says in this text, not true. Our comfort is in heaven, but also in the exclusive claims of Jesus to get there. There are eternal implications to our relationship with God in our beliefs. And in John's sixth recorded, I am statement of Jesus, you might remember some of those, that I am the bread of life. Just like this, I am the way is the nail in the coffin. He's pounding emphatically, I am the only way to get to God, to heaven. He's also the truth, as we saw in John 1.14, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is also the life, John 1, 3-4. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. To get to the Father in heaven, we must go through Jesus. Verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. There are not many ways to the Father, there is only one. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there are no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The world calls this intolerance. Tolerance occupies a very high place in our society, does it not? Tolerate everything where we maximize freedom by allowing liberty and pluralism, cooperation in our culture. But that oftentimes leads to skepticism, and it often leads to eventual opposition to anything that says there is one form of truth and one way to life. I think this is one of the biggest idols where we live here in Vermont. Some call it being liberal, and some call it being conservative. 
but I call it another term, libertarian. And I think it's a better term. Where they say, we say oftentimes, don't tell us what to do. And just as strong as, don't tell me what not to do as well. Let me do what I want. You do you, let me do me. I'll let you do what you want to do. Karma Dr. Seuss pretty soon. But this is the response that we oftentimes get to sharing the gospel. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll move on. You know, which is the signal like you can move on as well. Intolerance eventually turns into intolerance when things get pushed back. D.I. Carson says, The sad reality is that this new contemporary tolerance is intrinsically intolerant. It's blind to its own shortcomings because it erroneously thinks it holds the moral high ground. No culture can be tolerant of everything or intolerant of everything. It's simply not possible. And so saying that Jesus is the only way to salvation isn't intolerance, friends. It's love. It's loving to tell people there is only one way to salvation. There is only one hope. There is only one Savior. And we have one hope, as our New City Catechism reminded us this week. We have one hope, and it's Jesus. All truth is God's truth. All life is God's life. But tr God's truth and God's life are incarnate in Jesus alone. And so Jesus comforts the disciples by calling them to believe that their hope is in heaven and the way to, and to get to heaven is through Jesus, that he is in control of everything. And knowledge about Jesus eventually becomes intimate and personal. He says, if you know him, you know the Father. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Believe in God, believe in Jesus. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And this is not just information about the Father. It's not information like God is omnipotent. God knows all. God is kind. God is loving. God is creator. Many people know and believe these facts about God. But many don't know God intimately and believe that those facts change the way in which we live as their God, like he is our God. Belief is personal. It's a wholehearted commitment and relationship with God. Don't be troubled, Jesus says. Believe. Believe in Jesus' sovereign power to remove us from this world. Believe in Jesus' sovereign power as the way to get out of this world by which we live. He brings comfort to us in belief through his sovereignty. And so do you believe his words? We have a place for you. And the way there is through Jesus alone. And it's always been through Jesus alone. In your disorientation, he's the way. In your confusion, he is the truth. In your fear, he is the life. He has never and will never let us down. So Philip asks a question, maybe a question that you have even asked or are asking. Can you give us a glimpse? Can you let us see what's going on here? So look at me, look with me at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us to know. Jesus said to him, have I been, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus brings comfort to us in his belief, or in, in belief, through his testimony, is our second point, through his testimony. Philip is exclaiming like Moses in Exodus 33, please show me your glory. Or he's wanting to see what Isaiah witnessed in Isaiah 6 verse 1 when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Philip doesn't want just facts to know. Heaven, the way to get there, are great. He wants to see God personally. Our two subpoints to Jesus' testimony and what we've seen is what we've seen in him and what we've heard in him. Jesus says, you have seen the Father in him. He asked Philip in verse 10, do you not believe that? Bring the, believe the appearance in what you have seen, Philip, in what I have done, Jesus is showing him. We've talked about distinctions in the Godhead already in John, the Trinity. And Jesus here explains more of the Trinity to us, where there's one God, one essence, manifested in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All have eternally existed in perfect community forever, where each is fully God. And Jesus is saying that he is the one who reveals the Father to us. He's saying, Philip, you have seen the Father. There is a mutual indwelling of each member in the Godhead as well in the Trinity, where the Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Father, the Spirit indwells the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son both indwell the Spirit. There is a mutual authority, there's mutual submission between the members of the Trinity. The Father sends the Son. The Son will send the Spirit. We'll see soon. The Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. And the Father, Father honors the Son. And although it can be confusing for our finite minds to understand and comprehend completely, it is a beautiful thing to behold. Jesus will bring us comfort in belief through his sovereignty and his testimony. His appearance is what we've seen, but also what they have heard. Even the hard and challenging words that he has just said may be hard for us to understand, right? Let me read verse 11 again. Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Jesus himself is the comfort. As all of this hinges on his character, the same character that he has, the same character that the Father has, and the same character that the Spirit has. And that comfort comes from who he is and what he has done and what he will do in the next few days or the next few chapters for us. Believe in Jesus to get to the place that he's preparing for us. He is the way to get there. He is the appearance and, or sorry, his appearance and life helps us to believe. But so does his teaching, which is, which is true. Jesus will bring comfort and belief through his testimony, through his appearance, and through his power. Look at verse 11 with me again. He says, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. 
believe on the account of the works that Jesus has performed, that we've seen them performed in the Gospel of John. He's referring primary to, primarily to these seven signs that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. The turning water to wine, the healing the official's son, healing the paralytic at the pool, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus, his good friend, from the dead. In comfort, it comes from Jesus in belief, through his sovereignty, but also through his testimony and what he has said and what he has done. Friends, he's worth trusting. His character never changes. He keeps all of his promises, but his promises extend to and through us as well. Our third point comes from verse 12. We'll read it again. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So his power then comes through us in two ways as well. His power through us, but also our prayers to him. Verse 12 says, Truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily. Jesus says, we've seen before, pay attention. Be comforted by his testimony, by his appearance, and pay attention. Be comforted by his power in and through us. The same power which performed those signs, those seven signs that we've seen throughout this gospel, believe and be comforted by those. In the days ahead, he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. So he says we can do greater works than he did. We see in Acts that these disciples walked around and their shadows healed people. It's pretty impressive. We see them raise people from the dead as well. We see them heal the sick as well. But what Jesus is saying here is not that we would do more spectacular or more supernatural works. Rather, he's saying the extent of our works will be greater. Acts 1.8 helps us when Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as disciples go, the power indwelling them is the same power indwelling Jesus, performing these miracles and doing this work. But the extent of that which the disciples, which includes you and I, do is greater than Jesus. Let me show you. The twelve quickly turned into 3,000 after Peter gave a sermon in Acts chapter 2. We see whole households believe in Acts chapter 10. Whole cities like Ephesus repented of their sin in Acts chapter 19. And the numbers have continued to increase for 2,000 years. Think about it. There are more Christians in this room, in this church, than are sitting in the room with Jesus when he said those words. You will do greater 
things, friends, and the greater things refer to the missionary efforts of God's people, of his disciples, the success of the early church. The works the disciples perform after the resurrection are the same works that we perform today. It's done in power, introduced by Jesus' sacrifice, his resurrection, and his subsequent exaltation, where he is now sitting, ruling, and reigning at the right hand of the Father, where we follow Jesus' example. And the extent of our ministry is more vast than Jesus' ministry, but he is the one who's working in and through us, through his power. Maybe you wanted to go out after the service and start a healing ministry. Jesus calls us to go on a healing crusade, though. Healing souls through the proclamation of the gospel. The good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as Jesus did his Father's work on earth so long ago, we carry out Jesus' work here today. This doesn't mean that we don't pray for healing or ask God to do miracles in our community. But God And God can, and he often does work in this way. But the greatest miracle in the life of people is the miracle of salvation by believing in Jesus, by believing in the gospel, Jesus alone, that he is the way. And guess what? It comes through our mouth and sharing that with others. As you might see in your bulletin, Forward Festival is in a couple weeks. It'd be great to participate in that. Let's serve the kids in our community. But let's have a purpose in that, to engage our community with the gospel. I have four kids at home. I don't need more trinkets that we'll give out. But we will give out trinkets to our community. But let's most importantly give out the gospel as we share it with those who engage with us. And as people believe, it's a great miracle that God would do in them. And then he would call them to follow this example and do these greater works. And the extent and the man, uh, as the gospel goes out among us will grow. And we will do greater works and have a great impact in this area. Not only does God comfort us via powerful works we perform through gospel proclamation, but it comes powerfully through our prayers. Let me read verses 13 and 14 again. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So in the Greek, whatever actually means whatever. So ask away. But there is a condition to our prayers. We ask in Jesus' name. And asking in Jesus' name means aligning our request with Jesus' character. This is not a formula to say, well, if I just ask in Jesus' names, our prayer will happen. I often finish a prayer in Jesus' name, and I oftentimes, maybe you're like me, don't really think about that almost period that we're putting on the end of our prayers. Well, in Jesus' name, and we can all lift up our heads, and we can move on. I want it to be 60 degrees every day. In Jesus' name. I want my spouse to act differently. In Jesus' name. I want that bank account to look a little bit differently. In Jesus' name. I want the debt to go away. In Jesus' name. I want health. In Jesus' name. I want the health of somebody else. In Jesus' name. Maybe you've prayed those prayers before, but it isn't answered. Comfort might not be there for you because not much has changed. I'm not saying that we should not pray for things that you desire. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 11, If then 
you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gift, good things to those who ask him? So friends, ask away. But to ask for things in Jesus' name is to ask and identify our requests with the purpose of Christ. To extend our will to be identified with His will. Like the Lord's Prayer, it says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. Prayer is not first, give me what I want. It's God's will be done. It's in His name. It's for His glory. It's for His name to be honored, for His character to be renowned in our area and manifested for all to see. Prayer is not about us. It's about Jesus. And I think that's a big American challenge. I want my name lifted up. Like, give me all these social media likes. And what a comfort we get from Jesus when we believe, when we realize that this world is not our home. We have a sovereign king. He is the way to get heaven. We have Jesus himself in his testimony. We have seen him. We have heard him. We also have his power working in and through us. And we are, when we are challenged in our world, because it's full of trouble, Jesus reminds us of these things. We have to remind ourselves. We have to remind each other that this place is not our home and that Jesus has and he will overcome. We have to remind ourselves and each other to remember the scriptures. Look at what he has done. Listen to what he has said. We remind ourselves as well to look what God has done in our lives. Look at what he has done, even in this church, that we can press forward and we can still allow him to work in and through us. Thinking positively and doing nothing about our circumstances won't change things on their own. That's what our world says. Well, think positively about your circumstances and it will all be fixed. Where God is sovereign, but we have to act. We have to have faith. We have to believe. The disciples had to leave the room. They had to go. They had to act. And God is sovereign. But bad theology leads to things like hyper-Calvinism, where we just sit on our butt and we do nothing. And we just trust God and His sovereignty to save whom He wants to save. Friends, He wants to use us to save other people as we were saved by someone telling us. He is in control. We can pray, and He does answer prayers. And He does change situations. But we must respond while resting in Jesus in the process. And the rest of his teaching will help us to know how to act as we continue through this teaching of Jesus in, through John 17. The church has applied these words when at the end of praying we say in Jesus' name, identifying with his purpose. But oftentimes we say, right, what word after we pray. Amen. Amen is a rude worded in the Hebrew word for truth, which is why English translators might have put truly, truly in your translations. Amen, amen starts verse 12. Some older translations might put verily, verily, Latin word for veritas, for truth. Amen is a word of truth. And Jesus, who is truth, because he's the way, the truth, and the life, 
we are asking in the context of our prayer, what I've said, let it be according to your truth, to your world, to your word, your will, your name, for your glory. And so in Cornerstone, in our troubles and our distress, believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Our comfort comes from Jesus. He's got a place for us, and He is the only way to get there. Our comfort comes knowing we have Jesus through His testimony as revealed in the Scriptures. We have seen Him. We have heard Him. And we get Him. And we can trust His power. Power manifested in and through us. And our acts of obedience and our prayers when we submit our wills to the will of God. There's a fourth comfort. No, we are almost done. We don't have another fourth point, but we'll get to that next week. The fourth comfort is the Comforter himself. We see next week. If you want to spend some time meditating on the rest of chapter 14 and the, this week as you prepare your hearts for next week, we see the third member of the Trinity revealed, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Paraclete, oftentimes translated as the Comforter himself. So, more on that next week. Jesus doesn't say, suck it up, cup. He comforts us. He comforts us in His sovereignty. He comforts us in His testimony. He comforts us in His power working in and through us. So, church, don't be troubled. Would you pray with me? Father, we rest in Jesus' words. Even the words in John 16 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Father, as we continue our time together this morning, would you help us to remember that you have overcome the world by sending your Son in our place to die on the cross for our sins. That is good news of great joy. That is the angels proclaim peace on earth with those with whom you are pleased. And God, this world we live in is troubling. Some of it we have no control over. But we trust and take heart that you are ruling and reigning. Always. You have never stopped. And that we can rest in that. God, would you be honored in the rest of our time this morning as we reflect on your son's sacrifice for you. As we sing songs of praise because of the great gifts that we've received because of his sacrifice for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.